Our scripture this evening will be from Zechariah chapter 5. Prophet Zechariah, that's the second to the last book in the Old Testament, right before Malachi. It's on page 943. 943. Zechariah chapter 5. I'll begin with verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked. And behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side. And everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. I said, What is it? He said, This is the ephah going forth. Again he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Also in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, we've come to question 39. Question 39 is centered on the fact that Jesus was crucified. Again, if you look across the page there to the inset, you can see that we've come to that section about Jesus Christ where we confess that he was crucified. Last week, we confessed that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. But now we confess that he was crucified, and the catechism asks the very natural question, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? And the answer given is yes. By this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Well, friends, we have here the same thought that we had last week. Last week, you'll remember that Jesus was sentenced under Pontius Pilate. Remember the the innocent Jesus, the verdict went out in Pilate's courtroom, guilty, even though he he was more innocent than any person that ever walked. And we talked about God's courtroom, where guilty sinners, who should be condemned, hear the glad verdict, not guilty. The innocent for the guilty, and the guilty Go free. Well, 
we have the same basic thought here. And that is that the death of, that when Jesus died by crucifixion, he in a special way displayed for us, rather than say if he had died from sickness or disease or something else, he in a special way displayed for us that he was coming under the curse of God. Now why is that? Well, because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, death by crucifixion is especially indicated as a death that was under a special curse by God. In Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, we read, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you, as an inheritance. Now, what we have in Deuteronomy 21 is not actually Roman crucifixion. What happens in, in, in Deuteronomy 21 is the person has already been executed for some crime that he committed. He committed a crime, he's executed, but then the severity of the crime, or I should say the severity of the punishment, is heightened by... Uh, I don't know how exactly they would do it. I mean, sometimes, I, I'm sorry for the details, they would impale the person on a pole and lift him up, and he would be exposed naked, and he would hang there for everybody to see. Again, he's already been killed, he's already been executed, but he would be exposed in this awful, shameful, public way. And, and the regulation that we have in Deuteronomy 21, in verse 22, is that if this is done, so God is not against the practice, Right? But he is against the, the practice of leaving it up overnight. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. Right? It says, and he, uh, let me back up to verse 22. He's committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death. So he's killed, he's executed for his crime, and then he is hung on a tree. In other words, he's exposed to public shame and ridicule. But, says God, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. You shall bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged, or in other words, he who is exposed in this public, awful way, is in a special way accursed of God. Now that's a bit confusing to us because we don't know the crime that the person would have committed. There are several capital crimes listed for us in the Old Testament. But we don't know which of, them's, which of those crimes require just simply an execution and which of them also were uh, so accursed by God that the person was not just executed, but also exposed in this awful way. But we are told here that whatever it was that he did, that that person is under a special curse from God. And he could not hang in that way of exposure overnight. And the reason given is so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. In other words, this is God's country. This is God's land. It's a holy land. And that practice is so shameful and under such a curse by God. I'm sorry, not the practice is a curse of God, but the, the person exposed in that way is under such a special curse from God that he would defile the holy land. And so he had to be taken down and buried the same day he was executed. Now, in the New Testament, when they come to think about Jesus as being crucified... They go back to this text. And it's actually Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 
who quotes Deuteronomy 21-23 and says that any person who died in this way is cursed by God. And Jesus died in this way. Not exactly, right? Because Jesus died in the act of being nailed to the cross, right? He wasn't killed first and then exposed that way. But still, there's enough similarity where Paul says that any person who's been crucified comes under the special curse of God. And he uses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that text in Deuteronomy 21 to establish that point. That because Jesus was exposed publicly, naked, hanging on a cross, in the very act of dying, and then finally dying, and still being exposed in that way, he came under the special curse of God. Now, not only was uh, the idea of being crucified and exposed in that public kind of way, under a special curse by God. But also in the Roman mind, my friends, crucifixion was something uh, so incredibly shameful. Again, no Roman was allowed to be persecuted. I always find it interesting that sometimes people wear crosses around their neck or in their ears or whatever it may be. And uh, I understand the, the, uh, the idea, of course. But I wonder sometimes if, if we really reflect on, on what that is. It's, it, you know, in our, own, in our own time, it would be like, having like an electric chair or something around your neck, right? Because it's, it's like a, a form of execution and the very most vile, worst form of persecution that you can ever imagine. That's what the cross represents. Now, of course, in a Christian understanding, it's representing the uh, Lord Jesus Christ taking our place on that cross and taking our place under that curse. But this is now the same basic thought as we had last week as the innocent in the place of the guilty, and now we have the cursed. Now that the, the, the category here is not guilty so much as it is cursed, the wrath of God, and Jesus Christ, our substitute, taking that curse upon himself so that we are set free. Now, my friends, that brings me to Zechariah and chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5, where we have this, this vision which to us seems so bizarre and so strange and difficult to interpret. Remember, Zechariah is, is kind of the, the book of Revelation, right? It uses the same modality, the same way of speaking with all these figures and, and, uh, and pictures that to us seem rather bizarre and strange and difficult to understand. But just in the same way as when we read the book of Revelation, when we read the book of Zechariah, let's not try to understand every detail Let's try to get the big picture. And let's, not, and let's certainly remember that we don't understand everything literally, right? These are pictures that are meant to communicate to us a truth. If we keep those principles in mind, then we can understand this accurately. And what we have here, my friends, is a picture of a curse. And in that sense, it fits what we're studying in the catechism today. Because the catechism says, yes, by this death, that is Jesus' death on the cross, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me. Now, in this chapter, we have in a very vivid and pictorial, symbolic way, the curse of God represented to us in this flying scroll. And so let's begin then with this first point, a scroll, and it's flying through the air. Now, already we have a picture that just is so strange to us, isn't it? Imagine a book, right, flying through the air, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. Now, the angel 
We call him the interpreting angel because he stands next to Zechariah and he explains to him what he sees. So we have Zechariah standing here. Next to him we have his teaching or his instructing, the interpreting angel. And the angel asks Zechariah, what do you see? And Zechariah says, I see the scroll. Its length is 20 cubits. Its width, 10 cubits. Uh, We might say uh, 30 feet by 15 feet, roughly. But already now we know that this scroll is not closed, right? It's not rolled up. It's open because it's 30 by 15, right? If it was closed, it wouldn't measure like that. So this is an open scroll that as it flies through the air, people can see it and they can read it. Verse 3, then he said to me, this is the curse. This is the curse. So this scroll is, you might say, uh, personified in a sense. It's, it's given almost a human characteristics in the sense that this scroll speaks. It, it has a word for Israel. So we, we see it's flying, we see its size, and now we see the content. Because in verse 3 it says this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Now that's undoubtedly why it's seen as flying, right? Because it needs to get everywhere. It needs to cover the whole land of Israel. It doesn't just go to one person. This is the, co- the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Now we're even told very specifically which commandments were violated. The writing on... Uh, uh, surely, uh, we read at the end of verse 3, Surely, everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side. So the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. That's on one side of the scroll. By the way, this is very strange also that this scroll is written on both sides. Unheard of in in Israelite society. Scrolls were only written on one side. So on the one side is written a curse against thieves. Then on the other side, everyone who swears, that is, swears falsely, uh, the Third Commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. the, uh, everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. So this is the content of the scroll. It has a curse against Eighth Commandment breakers and Third Commandment breakers. Now, why the Eighth Commandment and the Third Commandment? I have no idea. I don't understand that part of it. Again, this is one of those details that we kind of have to just let slide by. Some have said that maybe because the... the, the uh, Sins that were especially prominent in Israel were were sins of commerce, trading, and and stealing, right? That would be the Eighth Commandment. And the Third Commandment would be somewhat involved in that as well, swearing falsely to something that wasn't true. Um, Later, when it talks about the ephah in the the second part of this vision, the ephah was a basket used to measure grain. So perhaps there were uh, sins, you know, very predominant of exchange, right? Selling and buying and, and things like that. Again, that's speculation, Others have said that, well, there's a commandment from the first table and the second table, which means that it's involving all the commandments. Again, that really doesn't seem that helpful because why the third commandment, why the eighth commandment? I think, my friends, what we have here is commandments that are specifically prominent in those times, but certainly what is intended is all the commandments of God are written there on that scroll. Well, this curse does something. Again, it's, it's personified in that sense that in verse 4, 
God says, I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts. It, Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief, eighth commandment, and the house of the one who swears falsely, the third commandment, by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it. And the, the idea of consuming here is destroy it with its timber and stones. In other words, there won't be anything left. I mean, if you destroy a house to its timbers and stones, right, that's the core of the house. There's nothing left of it. It is utterly destroyed. So this curse comes. It comes into the home, spends the night. This is not a welcome visitor, my friends, because this destroys the home. The curse has a punishment. Well, then we proceed to the second part of the vision. I think it's the same vision. Some people see it as two separate visions, uh, I, I like to put them together because they, they fit together, especially when we interpret this in light of the New Testament, as we'll see later. But then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. And I said, what is it? So here he can't even, he can't even figure this one out you know, by looking at it. And he said, this is the ephah. Okay, that's a measuring basket used to measure grain. This is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. Now, a lead cover would be something very permanent. You would seal down a lead cover, be extremely heavy and not uh, susceptible to corrosion. Right? A lead cover is something very permanent. So this here, you've got an ephah basket with a lead cover on it. And there is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah. So he takes this woman, which is, is wickedness, right? It's, it's a symbol of wickedness. And he, he forces her down in that, in that ephah basket. You, you can just imagine, he pushes her down. And he slams that lid down. Cast the lead weight on its opening. Verse 9, then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. So you see that picture now? They come, these, these women with wings like a stork. Stork was an unclean animal. It lifts up this ephah and it carries it away. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. Now the land of Shinar would be the land of Babylon the land of Babylon. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. My friends, when we think about the book of Zechariah, we're, we're, we're thinking of a, a, a prophet who prophesied to Israel years after they had come out of exile. The Babylonian exile is past history for them. They were in Babylon, but they have returned out of Babylon. And God has given this word to Zechariah to encourage his people. In fact, you know that if you read the previous chapters of uh, Zechariah, it's all these visions that God gives to Zechariah to encourage his people. And so we must understand then that this vision too is given to encourage God's people, Israel. And in the second part of this vision, God is encouraging his people. By He mentions the third commandment breakers, the eighth commandment breakers. And of course we would conclude all the commandment breakers. But then in the second part of what I would say is the same vision, God says, no, I take that wickedness, I take that sin, and I stuff it into a basket. And, and violently, he stuffs it, he smashes down the lid on that basket. 
And it's not just any lid. It's a lead cover. And two beings come, these, these women with the wings of stork. And where do they carry it? Right back to Babylon. My people come back to my land. But I send their sin and their evil back to the land of exile. So that the land is, in a sense, purified. And the commandment breakers are taken out violently. Now, this is the basket. And this is the good news, right? The good news is that God will take the evil out of his land and send it back to Babylon. That's what happens. Now, of course, we're in the Old Testament, right? We don't expect the same uh, clarity that we get in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, we understand how this happened, don't we? That God takes sin and evil out of his land, right? By bringing this flying scroll to come over to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, my friends, that this flying scroll entered the home of Jesus. Found no sin there. No third commandment breakers. No eighth commandment breakers. No any commandment breakers. But he consumed that house, as we read in verse in verse 4. And he destroyed it utterly. And yet the member of that house was no sinner. He was perfectly guilty, perfectly innocent. And the curse consumed him. And that's what we see on the cross of Calvary, isn't it? That the curse of God came down with violence and with power on the Lord Jesus Christ. The curse destroyed him. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? That's why our catechism says he shouldered our curse. And again, I can take you back to the parallel thought that we had the week before, my friends, that in Pilate's courtroom, the innocent one was guilty. And in God's courtroom, the guilty one is innocent. And now we have the same thought that this flying scroll with a curse declared against all commandment breakers comes into Jesus' house and destroys him. That's where we see Christ in this passage, my friends. He shouldered our curse, as the catechism teaches us. Well, let's think then about these, this application, my friends. In the first place, Jesus and our curse. Because let's be clear about it, my friends. From the book of Zechariah, too, we can be clear that the curse that Jesus shouldered, as our catechism says, was not his own curse. It did not belong to him. He was the innocent one. When that scroll entered his home, it found no commandment violations there. Jesus shouldered our curse. This is also what we considered last week. And last week, you'll remember, I quoted from Isaiah 53, which the whole chapter is about Jesus taking on our sin. Well, I found it interesting that just as in the uh, verse 8, we found Jesus was declared guilty, right? He was, uh, he was condemned. Now in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, we read the idea that pertains to this week's message. Isaiah says, His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. To put it in the words of Zechariah, he hadn't committed sin against the third commandment or the eighth commandment or any commandment. But 
the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's the curse of God. Remember what we read from the Psalm 38. Remember how I said how, how the psalmist, as he writes, he seems like he's under some, some cloud, some, so, something's coming down to crush him. He's under the indignation and the wrath of God and all the other things he says in that psalm. Well, my friends, here we have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Now, he was innocent. There was no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So Jesus bore our curse. Well, I think that's a truth that we understand and we rejoice in. That's the good old gospel message, isn't it? We come then to the second application, and this time I want to take it a bit beyond, my friends, what we considered last time, last week. Because there's often that question in our minds. I am a third commandment breaker. I am an eighth commandment breaker. I have broken all the commandments of God. If that flying scroll were to come into my house, it would find more than enough cause to crush me. And my friends, I speak now as a person, as, as a Christian person, and as we, as we live, of course, if you're, if you're not a Christian in the first place, then you need to come to Christ for forgiveness, right? That's clear. But now I want to think and meditate on this with how we as Christians deal with our own violations of the commandments of God. Because I believe this chapter in Zechariah gives us a clue, an Old Testament clue, that in the New Testament becomes very clear. How we as Christians are to fight against the sin that remains within us. Oh, how we would love it, congregation, if the Spirit of God would do a perfect work within us immediately and that we would be cleansed from all sin immediately. Now, God has His reasons for not doing that. And sin cleaves to us. Even our best actions are stained with sin. And as the people of God, we earnestly desire to know, how can I gain the victory over these sins? My friends, I believe that the, that the prophet, the old prophet, speaks to us and gives us a clue. But let me start in the New Testament with these wonderful verses, these, these verses that are so deep, we, 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 dis, we, we never can plumb the depths of them. But I want you to see in these verses, if you have the outline, read them with me. I want you to see the connection between our fight against sin and Jesus being crucified. Because Paul makes this connection. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. There it is already. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now there we have already the idea of, of living. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My friends, do you see the connection that Paul sees between his life as a Christian, his life of trying to live to the glory of God, to live according to the commandments of God, and Jesus' crucifixion? This is so clear in this text that Paul saw a connection between those two things. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. How? That the old Paul, the Paul that, that thought he could earn his way into God's favor, 
The old Paul that thought he could dot every I and cross every T. That Paul was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ, was died and was buried and put away in a grave, never to be heard from again. That was, you might say, the redemptive reality that Paul lived under. Now, of course, the experiential reality was he had to struggle with that old Paul all every day, every minute of every day. Theologically, right? Paul was crucified, dead, and buried in the grave. Experientially, Paul has to live with that old Paul every day. But now notice how he glories in the fact that the curse that he deserved came on Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And notice the position that Paul takes up his fight against sin. Because that last clause is so critical, my friends. Notice it with me. Who loved me and gave himself up for me? Here's the new Paul. He steps out from this glorious experience of having been saved by Jesus Christ, by, by, by seeing Jesus come under his curse and being nailed to that cross, a, a, a form of execution which was especially cursed by God. And Paul comes out of the glory and the, the, the flush of that experience and he steps out and he says, the life I now live, do you hear the word now there? The life I now live. He steps into this new life, as it were. He leaves the old Paul behind. Now, of course, it's still within him. But theologically, Paul is glorying in this fact. He's left the old Paul behind. And then he says, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. My friends, I think that Paul would go back in his mind to two things. First, to that spot on the Damascus Road. How could he ever forget that spot? That unforgettable moment when the call of God came down upon him with power and, and floored him right there and called him out of darkness into light. But there's another thing, my friends. There's another time that Paul goes back to the hill of Calvary outside Jerusalem and he remembers what took place there. And my friends, out of the power of those two things, really, I think for Paul, they would just be one thing. He lived under the power of those two events. That's how he stepped out to live the Christian life. That's how he stepped out to make war against indwelling sin. We have the same thought in Galatians 6, verse 14, where Paul says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross. Remember how I was saying people wear crosses around their neck and, and, and what a dreadful reality in one sense that is? And yet here's Paul. Here's Paul saying, I boast in the cross. In the cross. How can you boast? Those two words should never go together. You can't boast in the cross. Not if you're a Jew, because that's especially cursed by God. Not as a Roman, the, the crucifixion is the worst possible death. But Paul says, I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. In other words, Paul says, when I see the curse that Christ came on that cross, the world means nothing to me anymore. That's, again, if I can say it in that way, the reality that Paul lives under. The world with all its attractions and all the things that appeal to us, all the gadgets that it it, it dangles in front of our eyes, happiness here, you can find good here. Paul says, I'm dead to it. It's crucified to me. Why? Because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul reflects on what happened on that cross on Calvary, The world means nothing to him. 
the world means nothing to him. My friends, this is how we should approach God's law. This is how we have to approach God's law. We should think of what God has done outside of us. And I I say this now because I want to take it back to Zechariah 5. What has God done outside of us? He's taken that curse, that flying scroll. It's come down upon Jesus Christ. It cursed him so that we can go free. Christ took our curse. That in the first place. That took place outside of us. But God has also done something inside of us. That wickedness, that sin, my friends, that you feel, that every day we struggle against, God's taken it. He shoved it into a basket. He slapped a lid on it. And he shipped it off to Babylon. Theologically, my friends, we can say we are dead. And Paul says this. We are dead to sin. That means we have nothing to do with it anymore. Experientially, we face something different, don't we? Experientially, we face the reality of sin every day. But my friends, Paul will teach us this evening, and I believe that Zechariah the prophet, God speaking through Zechariah the prophet, would teach us, reflect on those two truths first, and then tackle sin. Then come to the law of God. My friends, how different it is to face the law of God, reflecting on Christ taking our curse, and now reading, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. What a different reality the law of God is when we approach it in that way. You see, my friends, when we approach, when we pick up the law of God and we begin reading, thou shalt, thou shalt, because we have to be good enough, because we know God is holy and we've got to measure up. And I know, we, you know we're all trained theologically. We know we're not supposed to say this. You know, we, we, we know we're not supposed to keep God's law to try to earn his favor. But my friends, that same legal spirit sneaks into our souls. It sneaks into our life as Christians. And instead of living out of the power of Christ taking our curse on the cross of Calvary, we begin to try to find power in our own strength. We begin to try to find power in what I've done, in what I can do, in what I will do to please God. I so want you to see the difference, my friends, of how we approach the law of God as those who recognize what God has done outside of us and taking our curse and putting it upon his son. And what God has done within us, I am dead to sin, says Paul. And living out of the power of those twin realities. Now, my friends, like every other truth, these, these truths are always abused. The first extreme is people who don't understand this reality at all, like the Apostle Paul when he, when he, when he first came under conviction. And he thought that he could earn his salvation. And there are people like that, right, who keep the law of God. And they, and they try their best. They, 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 they discipline themselves. And they, and they do their best to keep God's law perfectly. There are even Christians, my friends, who come under this kind of legal spirit. That's one extreme that we have to fight against. And that's what I've been, I've been really taking aim at in this second application. Now, there's also the other extreme, right, of people who say, well, we don't need the law of God at all anymore. I, in fact, uh, I, I've read, I read, I tried to find it this week, I couldn't find it, but I, I know I've read it before, uh, this preacher who instructed his people that any effort you put in fighting sin is a waste of time. Don't try to fight sin. Let God's power work through you. It kind of the, uh, kind of the, 
stand back and see the power of God work through you. You don't have to discipline yourself. You don't have to... In fact, the law of God is, is a... Get rid of the law of God completely. Christ lives in you. By the way, I, I, I noticed that in Galatians 3... Uh, sorry, in, in Galatians 2, in that verse, Galatians 2, notice that Paul says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, right? In other words, Paul is saying, I still have two feet upon the ground, right? It's not as if Christ has somehow taken over for me, and now it's Christ living and not me. No, Christ, Paul still has to live. Paul still has to make choices. Paul still has to discipline himself. But again, he does it from a completely different ground. He lives out of the power of those theological realities that we talked about. So we have to avoid this extreme. These people who say, don't discipline yourself, throw out the law of God. And I, in fact, I, I have to say that many uh, Bible churches and, and, and uh, more independent-minded churches uh, often take this attitude. They don't, need, they don't read the Ten Commandments in their, in their services anymore because they have a very negative attitude towards God's law. Now, my friends, be, 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 be sure you understand that Paul's negative comments about the law are not just about the law per se in and of itself. But they are about approaching the law of God as a person who doesn't approach it from those two perspectives, again, of what God has done out of us and what God has done within us. Those people who approach the law of God in this, the first extreme that I said, in order to earn one's salvation, in order to earn God's favor, then the law is a killing letter, says Paul. It brings death. But don't throw out the law of God. It's not the law of God that's the problem. God still expects us to keep his commandments. He still expects us to, to, to discipline ourselves. And we got to wake up Monday morning, right, with the experiential reality that the sin still lives within us and still is trying to drag us down to hell. And we have to fight against it. So there's two extremes, isn't it? The one extreme is a kind of legalistic spirit of trying to earn God's favor. Then you have the other folks over here who say we throw out the law of God completely. Just live. Christ is living in you. Just sit back and let the power of God flow through you. Don't try to be sanctified. Don't try to obey God. Just, just let his power flow through you and whatever all that means. But my friends, I think Paul gives us a good balance there, right? He says the, the, the life which I now live in the flesh. Okay? Paul's still a real man. He's, not, he's still Paul. But again, I live by faith in the Son of God. He approaches the law of God so differently than he ever did before. By the way, in the catechism, our catechism is so biblical, my friends, and I just discovered this actually this this afternoon. I hadn't even noticed this before, but just, so this was question 39, I believe. Uh, No, this is, yes, this is question 39, but in question 43, listen to this. In question 43, It says, what further advantage do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? And our catechism, and again, you can just hear Paul speaking right through our catechism to us. Through Christ's death, our old selves are crucified. What did Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ. Through Christ's death, our old selves are crucified, put to death and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us but that instead we may dedicate ourselves as an offering of gratitude to him. What beautiful language that is, my friends. How, how, what a pure biblical truth we have in that question. In fact, I'm almost a little disappointed because now I realize I have to preach on this truth. Well, not disappointed, it's a glad thing I get to preach on this truth again in just a couple more questions, but I didn't realize it was there. But there it is. That's, what, that's the Pauline truth that he'll teach us, that let's face sin from this position 
from those who have died with Christ, seen him taking our curse, and now feeling the liberating power of the gospel as we step free into a new life, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. My last point, my friends, is no more curse. You know, the curse was taken by Christ on the cross, but we still live with the effects of it, right? Experientially, I told you, theologically, our sins are dead, buried, our old self is gone. But experientially, we still live with this constant struggle against sin, but not forever. Because there comes a time, says John in Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curse. No curse. That's where we ended this morning too, isn't it? That's where we ended this morning too. Abraham, Moses, all the saints of old looking to the promised reward. Their life on earth was a looking. They saw the promise from a distance. And now, my friends, we can end our sermon this evening rejoicing in hope for that time when there will be no more curse. I hope that leads us to say, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let us pray. Almighty God, we draw near to you at the close of this service. Lord, this is the old gospel that we've heard so many times, sermon after sermon on the gospel the good news, Jesus, the innocent in place of the guilty. But Lord, it never grows old. We delight and we rejoice in it. We boast in the cross of Christ. And the life we now live, Lord, help us not to live this life by reading the law as a a letter of condemnation, as a letter that that we're always trying to, to measure up, never quite enough, But Lord, help us to live out of the power of these realities that Christ took our curse and that Christ took our sin, even the sin that dwells within us, even our indwelling sin. He put it in an ephah basket and shipped it off into exile that we may never hear from it again. Lord, help us to live then our life in the flesh in the power of that great reality, to live by faith in the Son of God. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, not just to confess this theologically, but also to experience it, Lord, in our daily life where we do have to struggle against sin day in and day out. And the curse, Lord, even though the penalty and the guilt of the curse no longer lies upon us, still the effects of it cause us so much pain and so many times cause us to backslide, so many times cause us to betray our master. Lord, help us then to go forward. Help us to take hold of Jesus Christ this evening, tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and every day of our life. And that we might finally come to that great time in our life, Lord, when we will shout with joy at the complete elimination of the curse entirely. Lord, help us to be faithful until that day. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing from number 299 in the red hymnal. Now some of you are going to say Christmas is past. Why are we singing joy to the world? Well, there's a, there's a good reason. Because in the third verse, we hope to sing this. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow 
far as the curse is found. Well, let's sing those words then. One, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, all the verses of 299 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Amen.